Welcome to the PRI Review, brought to you by the Population Research Institute. I'm your host, Christopher Mann. The Equality Act will change every aspect of American life. On February 25th, the House of Representatives, by a vote of 211 to 195, passed H.R. 5, the so-called Equality Act. Here is the official summary provided by the Congressional Research Service in full. Equality Act. This bill prohibits discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity in areas including public accommodations and facilities, education, federal funding, employment, housing, credit, and the jury system. In brief, (laughs) very little of everyday life is left out. The summary continues. Specifically, the bill defines and includes sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity among the prohibited categories of discrimination or segregation. Wait a minute. Includes? Perhaps, but does not define, and it is hardly specific regarding specifically. Summary continues. The bill expands the definition of public accommodations to include places or establishments that provide exhibitions, recreation, exercise, amusement, gatherings or displays, goods, services or programs, and transportation services. Okay, do you feel left out? (laughs) Don't. (laughs) You'll be included soon if you aren't already. The summary continues. The bill allows the Department of Justice to intervene in equal protection actions in federal court on account of sexual orientation or gender identity. Well, there's a lawyer's dream, if not everyone else's nightmare. And the summary concludes. The bill prohibits an individual from being denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, a locker room, and a dressing room that is in accordance with the individual's gender identity. Well, this particular is covered in the first paragraph, isn't it? But it is repeated here for emphasis because the consequences of this provision will begin in schools throughout the country before the ink is dry at the White House signing ceremony. We will examine the particulars of the bill after considering certain preambles necessary for that analysis. First, on reality denied. Philosopher Eric Vogelin has identified the powerful temptation to deny reality. It's an ideological tendency that has grown more prevalent in the past century. That denial was introduced by Karl Marx, who demanded that man not waste time understanding reality. I quote, the point is, he said, to change it, end quote, more bluntly, to destroy it in order to construct from the ruins a future world occupied by truly socialist man. The Equality Act indulges in that enterprise of denial by challenging the scientific, anthropological, religious, cultural facts of reality regarding man and woman. Once these are denied, the bill pretends to create a new reality 
by legislative fiat. Second, on the consequences of embracing an ideological second reality. The Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn witnessed firsthand the triumph of Marx's program as applied by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. That party embraced a false vision of the nature of man and of reality in order to conform to the false tenets of the communist ideology. The party implemented that vision by the use of unprecedented terror and force. In response, Solzhenitsyn observed that the truth will make you free, but falsehood always brings violence in its wake. End quote. Third, how this law of cause and effect plays out, the violence identified by Solzhenitsyn can be wielded only by means of power. In order to implement its goals, H.R. 5, the Equality Act, confers the power to enforce its provisions on the various branches of the federal government. On that note, the warning of C.S. Lewis is helpful. For the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. End quote. Indeed, H.R. 5 confers on every individual the right to change the reality of their sexual nature and, having done so, to call upon the federal government to make other men conform to their choice, by force if necessary. Well, does that make all men equal? Huh. We will be told, of course, that some men are more equal than others. We see above the ideological origin of the demand to alter reality, the success of a tyrannical regime in embracing it, the violent consequences of that embrace in history, and how the unlimited power to enforce that demand rests in the hands of the few who then use their power to impose their will on the rest of the population in the real world. Well, with these preambles, we can raise certain questions regarding the particulars of H.R. 5. The term sexual orientation appears 39 times in the bill. Under definitions, we find that the term sexual orientation means homosexuality, heterosexuality, or bisexuality. Well, that ignores the several dozen other categories currently claimed by their respective adherents. The term LGBTQ appears nine times, again without definition. Most prevalent is the term gender identity. It appears in the bill 61 times. Under definitions, we find that the term gender identity means the gender-related identity, appearance, mannerisms, or other gender-related characteristics of an individual regardless of the individual's designated sex at birth. Of course, that is no definition at all. At best, it's a description of random qualities that the bill's authors dumped under characteristics, and that term appears four times in the bill, again, without being defined. Of course, the lack of definition is required here. It has to be there, has to be ambiguous, to make possible the prosecution not only of actions, but of perceptions and beliefs. I read here from the Act. The term race, color, religion, sex, 
including sexual orientation and gender identity, or national origin, used with respect to an individual, includes, down to subsection B, a perception or belief, even if inaccurate, concerning the race, color, religion, sex, including sexual orientation and gender identity, economic status, or national origin, respectively, of the individual, end quote. Well, the bill's reach is as expansive as its terms are ambiguous and even contradictory. Uh, Consider, if it becomes law, the bill has onerous consequences for those whose perception, accurate or inaccurate, of a person's gender identity might lead to unlawful discrimination. But that provision also applies to the individual allegedly discriminated against. That individual must perceive, accurately or inaccurately, in the mind of the discriminator, a perception or belief. Of course, such a perception is impossible. And so, the aggrieved individual must believe that such a perception or belief exists in the mind of the discriminator. Hence, A case against an alleged violation of the Equality Act can be brought on the basis of what one person believes that another person believes. Which is to say, if person A believes that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him, male and female, created he them. That's Genesis 5. And... He is perceived to have discriminated against person B in any way. That perception suffices to make person A in violation of the Equality Act per se. And speaking of perception, gender identity is also a matter of perception not only on the part of the transgressor, but on the part of the individual who chooses to adopt a qualifying gender identity even though H.R. 5 criticizes the discredited practice, so said, known as conversion therapy, the individual choosing one's gender identity is free to amend that choice at will, converting his sexuality quite arbitrarily, without public notice, if the individual's sexual whims change. How are we going to perceive that, pray tell? Should H.R. 5 be signed into law, One unavoidable consequence will be the explosion of lawsuits, court cases, administrative rulings, and constitutional challenges. One pivot point sure to be employed by the expanded law's advocates is the Supreme Court's decision in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992. I quote there, Liberty finds no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt. That's what the plurality opinion reads. But Justice O'Connor, joined by Justices Kennedy and Souter, immediately ensures that doubt will in fact abide and prosper. Here is their finding of fact. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. End quote. Now, imprecision, the lack of precision, ideology masquerading as settled law, 
unlimited breadth of application, all imposed by brute force. The devastation that the Equality Act will wreak is immeasurable. Will minor children be allowed to choose sex change surgery and drugs without parental knowledge or consent? Rachel Levine, the Biden administration's chief health official and a transsexual, refuses to answer. Will the age of consent regarding sex be reduced to 12, 10, 6 years of age? The sky's the limit when it comes to equality. Well, that's only one example. There are countless others. Believe me, there will be. Employers, workers, medical professionals, families, women, and unborn children will be targeted. Religious institutions of all kinds at every level will be attacked, disrupted, many of them even closed down. One need only observe the cost incurred by such organizations as the Little Sisters of the Poor to defend themselves against the HH. S. contraceptive mandate, they were forced to spend untold millions of dollars on account of one little federal regulation. The Equality Act will apply to every private and public action performed in, and I quote, both private sector and federal, state, and local government actors, including in employment, housing, and public accommodations, and in programs and activities receiving federal financial assistance, end quote. Look, nothing will be exempt. The Equality Act allows no hiding place from the gender thought police. Returning to our preambles, we see here the enshrinement of the right of every individual to define one's own version of reality. But even fondly held visions cannot escape the law of cause and effect. Over time, chaos will inevitably follow from that clash of visions. At that point, society will prefer order, any order, to chaos. Then the question will be, whose vision shall rule? Humpty Dumpty has the answer. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. You're listening to PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back. My friends, the Equality Act is a monstrosity and a lie. Flies in the face of our country's founding principles that recognized with deep gratitude the God who created us equal in his sight. To enjoy those rights, exercise them, and defend them, we must accept them on God's terms. Male and female, he created them. The House of Representatives has passed this bill as a payoff to powerful donor interest groups, 
and the Senate will consider it next. Those same groups will be back, pounding on those senators' doors and sending them plenty of money to boot. If the Senate passes this legislation, the President has unfortunately committed to signing it. It is up to us to do everything we can right now. Call our senators. Tell our friends. Write your local newspapers. Call your local talk shows. The gender fraud brigades are attacking everything precious that we hold dear. We have to fight back. We have to raise the alarm like the patriots of old to defend our families, our faith, and our freedom. We cannot allow the twisted supporters of this grotesque invasion of everything we hold dear to win. And if we fight, they won't win. We will. COVID-19 vaccines, pro-life or no? Katerina Caranco reports from PRI's Rome office. Many in the pro-life movement are undecided whether to accept or reject the COVID-19 vaccine. But before we decide to make it as a movement a kind of pro-life litmus test, we must put the larger issue of abortion in context. Truth be told, the COVID-19 vaccines are but one sad little link in a much bigger chain, fettered to a great evil of our age, the killing of innocent children in the womb. Those who say that the COVID-19 vaccines presently available are morally illicit point to the fact that the cell line used in their testing or production was derived from a baby aborted around 1960. It is important to note that the vaccines currently available vary in their connection to abortion and thus their cooperation with that evil. The AstraZeneca vaccine used cell lines derived from abortion at all stages of the vaccine process, that is, development, production, and testing. And therefore, that vaccine has a strong connection to abortion. However, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines were not developed or produced from cell lines derived from abortion, but did make use of such cell lines, HEK293, during the testing stages. Both the Pontifical Academy of Life and the lay-run John Paul II Academy for Human Life and Family believe that this constitutes remote cooperation with evil, and should not be used as a basis for denying anyone the vaccine, especially the elderly who are at high risk from the China virus. But if an individual decides that receiving such a vaccine constitutes immoral cooperation with evil, then we and society at large should also reflect on all of our other choices in life that also constitute immoral cooperation with that same evil. The fact is that the same 60-year-old cell lines used to develop the COVID-19 vaccine have not only been used in the making of other vaccines, but also in developing cancer treatments, insulin, and numerous commonly prescribed medicines and drugs, such as statins and blood pressure medications. 
The bottom line is that if the use of the currently available COVID vaccines is illicit because of their association with these cell lines, then the same use of these cells in the production of almost all of today's medications make their use equally illicit and we must therefore refuse them. Tens of millions of individuals would lose access to life-saving medications if we went down this path. Those who claim that the use of COVID-19 vaccines can never be justified to be consistent must apply the same standard to all medicines that are associated with abortion. This would put the lives of countless people at immediate risk and create an even bigger moral dilemma concerning human dignity than we are currently facing with a vaccine alone. In a broader sense, we are all guilty of cooperation with evil of abortion by the nature of our society's economic and cultural connection to it. For this reason, it is intellectually dishonest and inconsistent to deny vulnerable people who need immunization from COVID-19 access to the vaccines that are currently available, especially when there are no moral alternatives present. Perhaps one might suggest the use of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin as effective therapeutics in the treatment of COVID-19. But it turns out that these drugs, too, are tested using the same cell lines. The average American has a much more proximate cooperation in the evil of abortion when they pay their taxes or buy anything made in China, where the government forces women to have abortions. And now, under the Biden administration, we will be complicit in abortion when we simply pay our taxes. Remote cooperation, not just with abortion but with all evil, is inevitable unless we completely isolate ourselves from modern society by taking up a hermit-like existence. This is not to say that individuals should not be free to abstain from a vaccine that has a connection to abortion, as long as by refusing it, they do not cause harm to themselves or their community. And if there is no so-called clean vaccine option, a vaccine that is not associated with abortion, then you should choose the vaccine that has the most remote cooperation with this evil. We should demand ethical practices and biomedical research, which means not using cell lines from aborted babies, and we should employ every lawful means to achieve this end. We should all educate ourselves using trustworthy sources of information so that we will know how to proceed. All this is to say that the COVID-19 vaccines are only a small part of a much larger problem. The abortion industrial complex itself and the immoral practices of both biomedical researchers and the pharmacological industry. We urge everyone in the pro-life movement to confront the larger issues raised above. If we are to have an effective response to the unethical practices in the biomedical and pharmacological industries, we must be unified in our demands for clean vaccines and clean medicines. We must be courageous in our pursuit to seek the truth and defend life, but be realistic about the challenges as well. Above all, we must pray for clarity 
as we seek to expunge the sin of abortion from every corner of our lives and from society as well. You're listening to PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back. Joe Biden's wrecking crew has already started to reverse Trump's four-year efforts to fight against abortion. But we can't despair, and there's a lot we can do, and we don't have to wait until 2024. We can start right now because we can win one major pro-life victory after another, and there's nothing Joe Biden can do to stop us. How? Just as we have successfully done in recent years, we can help pass heartbeat legislation in even more states in 2021. Heartbeat legislation, as you know, outlaws the killing of unborn babies from the moment a baby's heartbeat can be detected. Passing heartbeat legislation in even more states will save countless babies' lives, and because it is a state piece of legislation, there is not one single thing Joe Biden can do to block it. PRI research shows good to excellent chances of passing heartbeat legislation in these 11 states, Texas, Oklahoma, Utah, Indiana, Nebraska, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, South Dakota, South Carolina, and West Virginia. Will you help us Go to these states and win those votes for life this year. Nothing gets a politician's attention faster than voters united and demanding immediate action for specific legislation. In this case, heartbeat legislation. So that's exactly what PRI will help do in the 11 states I just listed. We'll be producing special videos aimed at educating and mobilizing pro-life voters in those 11 states. Those will run on social media outlets that reach large numbers of pro-life viewers in each of the targeted states. Already, PRI is followed by more than 1 million pro-lifers on Facebook. With heartbeat legislation as the topic, we expect to add 50,000 new readers in just those 11 states that we've targeted already, adding to the pressure on governors and state legislators to pass heartbeat. Our ads promoting the legislation will run regularly in the diocesan newspapers of those targeted states, and that's one of the best ways to reach and to mobilize devout Catholics. And, of course, we will flood governors and legislative leaders in the 11 targeted states with petitions for heartbeat legislation. We've got to make them feel the heat. Will you help us in this effort this year to win more pro-life victories? If you will, just go to our website at pop.org, P-O-P and click the Donate button and help us out as best as you can. Click that link today so that we can have victories tomorrow. You'll be glad you did. 
defend the present, we must understand the past. In tumultuous times, the endless flurry of events can distract us from the fundamentals of life, and some folks want it that way. It's no secret that malevolent forces rely on disorder, even chaos, as cover for the destructive schemes. When those forces find allies among the broader population, even enjoying the support of willing cooperators from the country's cultural elites, a nation's bedrock principles can no longer be taken for granted. They must be defended at all costs, which means that they must first be understood. It often seems that America's enemies understand these principles better than her defenders do. No, the enemy, said Sun Tzu, thousands of years ago. Leftists at home and abroad recognize well how America's faith in our constitutional government are the twin targets that must be destroyed for tyranny to succeed. So destroy they must. We have often remarked the contempt that Karl Marx had for philosophy. Philosophy has only interpreted the world, he wrote. The point is to change it. And that was in one of his early theses on Feuerbach, number 11. Since Marx was a materialist, he targeted reality, all of it, for destruction. Truth, beauty, virtue, liberty, everything good must be destroyed. That goal has been embraced by the left ever since. Curiously, he won't hear this very often, Adolf Hitler resonated Karl Marx's demand for destruction. In Mein Kampf, Hitler demanded a declaration of war against the existing order, the existing reality, the existing worldview, Volume 2, Chapter 5. That's why the left glories in calling Donald Trump another Hitler. The epithet has been carefully defined as irrefutable by generations of leftists who don't want you to know that Nazi means National Socialism and that Hitler was a leftist, not one of those right-wing extremists, after all. How did Stalin escape a similar fate? Why doesn't the left call somebody another Stalin, like they do another Hitler? Ah, Stalin was FDR's good buddy, and that's not part of what our good friend Stan Evans used to call the liberal history lesson. So down the memory hole goes Joe Stalin. And what about Joe Biden? Does his rule by decree make him another Stalin? It's hardly worth the effort. Maybe Dr. Jill is another Alina Ceausescu, but that name is probably too hard to pronounce, and she was shot on Christmas Day when the communists were thrown out of Romania anyway. So taunting Jill Biden as another Elena Ceausescu would probably be hate speech. There's no room for Elena in the left's cozy curriculum. For the budding totalitarian, Karl Marx and Adolf Hitler are sound guides. They recognize that military victory alone does not deliver undisputed power. The entire social reality, its faith, its freedoms, its institutions, must be destroyed before they can be replaced by the revolutionary model. Today's leftists, bent on destroying the United States, understand that. That's why they target for destruction our constitutional protections of liberty, 
including the Electoral College, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the Bill of Rights, our churches, and our borders, to name just a few. Those of us who defend our liberties must be canceled, that is, deprived of our right to work, to speak, to tell the truth, to protect our families, our neighbors, and our communities. In fact, our entire language must be destroyed. America was founded in slavery, insists the New York Times, so we must tear down those Jefferson statues, rename Washington Boulevard and John Adams High School. Oppose us and you are a white supremacist. Never mind that once they win, they'll enslave us all. So what if two generations of students haven't learned any history at all? They must be indoctrinated nonetheless because George Orwell was right. He who controls the present controls the past, and he who controls the past controls the future. And, my friends, these folks want to control the future very much. Well, that brings us to a vibrant defense of America that I want to talk about, because in recent weeks, what has come to pass, what we may loosely call politics, is a farce. We can team up Hamlet and Liza Doolittle to deliver the verdict. Words, words, words. While the poor players strut and fret their hour upon the stage, tis better that we turn our attention to our homework. We have to sink our intellectual teeth in the real red meat, remember our roots, and dig into the origin of certain truths without which the American founding would have been inconceivable. That's how Robert Riley puts it in his latest work, America on Trial, a defense of the founding from Ignatius Press. With vigor and clarity, Riley traces the lineage of the ideas that made the United States possible. His work was inspired by the classic We Hold These Truths, in which John Courtney Murray, in which John Courtney Murray, a Jesuit, writes that our founders thought the life of man and society under government is founded on truths, on a certain body of objective truth, universal in its import, accessible to the reason of man, definable, defensible. If this assertion is denied, the American proposition is, I think, eviscerated at one stroke. End quote. But where do these truths come from? Quoting Riley here, the story begins in classical philosophy and continues through history as the defense of nature, the good, and reason against the constant attacks of will, especially the will to power. Now, the persuasive charm of Riley's prose flows pretty easily, and the reader might forget that she is reading a brilliant work of intellectual history and more, a defense of that history against both those who would destroy it and those who would consider it as an inadequate foundation, given the current pain suffered by our constitutional republic. This accounts for Riley's extensive review of the historical sources of our liberties. He finds those in Israel, in Athens, and in Rome. He follows their development through the centuries, taking note of their defenders and their deformers. His treatment explains how the founding didn't take place in a vacuum, but within a rich and fascinating history, all of it inspired by God.
Our founding was based not on a couple of abstract documents, but on millennia of historical realities that inform and articulate every word, every phrase, every concept so dearly defended by our founders. All of these rest on the firm foundation of the laws of nature and of nature's God, without which our independence and our liberties would have no defense at all. So whence arose these truths? John Adams called them the general principles of Christianity and the general principles of English and American liberty. Faith and freedom united to form the foundations of the unique American constitutional republic, and Riley ably defends the source of those principles that culminated in the founding of America the Beautiful. Today's scions of secularism will tremble at Riley's recounting of the principles of Magna Carta that flowed from centuries of Catholic, Church, canon law, and practice that preceded it. Augustine's City of God, remember Augustine died in 430, he was a union man. In his City of God, Augustine proclaimed for all time the limits of political power, a truth that flourished in Christendom and nowhere else. To put it simply, without God there is no freedom. Ask any tyrant. Like Marx and Hitler, today's enemies of freedom recognize the Catholic Church and its timeless teachings as the ultimate enemy that must be destroyed. Augustine identified for all times the enemies of the city of God as those who love power, unlimited power for its own sake. And their leader, he said, is Satan. Reading Riley, one appreciates all the more why we must defeat them. You've been listening to PRI Review from pop.org. Thanks for listening. Music.